Good morning. Welcome to Faithfully Memphis. I'm your host this week. My name is Emily Austin, and I'm the Minister of Communication for the Episcopal Church in West Tennessee. I am delighted, along with my colleagues and my friends in our local Episcopal community, to bring you a conversation with someone who is doing amazing work in their field and learning how uh, the Holy Spirit is working in their life and how uh, they can be a light and a presence in a world that, as we've noticed from the last week or so here in Memphis, can be really dark at times. Um, This week, our guest is the Reverend Robert Tobin. He's a historian and a priest in the Church of England, although I know that when you first hear his voice, you're going to say, he's in the Church of England? Yes, he is, even though he has an American accent, and that's because he was raised in Boston and Texas, and he took his first degree from Harvard. Uh, He's a Fulbright scholar, and he holds his degrees from Trinity College, Dublin, Oxford, and Cambridge, and today we're talking about his latest book, which is called Privilege and Prophecy, Social Activism in the Post-War Episcopal Church. Welcome, Robert. Or I, I want to make sure that I'm referring to you the way you would like to ref- be referred to, because that, that's something that's really important to us. So are you Father Tobin, Reverend Tobin, Father Robert? What, how would you like for me to refer to you? Robert is just fine. Robert. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Welcome to Faithfully Memphis. Thank so we, we are we are talking across timelines right Indeed. now, right? So it's early morning here in Memphis, but it's it's later in the day where you are calling home, right? That's right. Six hours ahead of you. It's two yeah. o'clock. Oh so. my goodness! So so where I just had my morning coffee, you you probably just tucked in for for lunch. That's right. Yeah. So. Uh... It's definitely have to get used to uh, accommodating these things when you try to have transatlantic uh, communication. Yeah, yeah. And when you and I emailed earlier this year about your book and we were talking about finding a time to talk about it, I remember it was during Lent. It was right around April because... I remember we were uh, at the at the Diocese of West Tennessee. We were thinking about um, the commemoration of, of, of Good Friday. It was right around Holy Week. And we were also thinking a lot about um, a, an event that we did here at the cathedral earlier this year where we commemorated uh, the uh, the death and uh, you know, martyrdom of Martin Luther King. And when, and, and so that in my mind is very coupled with you and I first exchanging emails about the book. Um, and here we are almost five months later. I don't think either of us could ever imagine that we would be talking in the wake of uh, the passing of Her Royal Highness. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so how no. are what's the tenure? How how are things in England right now as we think about the passing of the queen? 
Well, Emily, as you can imagine, um, it is a hugely significant event here in the United Kingdom and across the Commonwealth. And of course, uh, you know, in the United States and elsewhere, um, the Queen has been a presence um, in people's lives for 70 years. And, uh, you know, there are very few people indeed now who will have known any other monarch. Um, yeah. And so I think one of the recurring uh, feelings and one of the things people keep saying is what a constant presence she has been for them. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's very hard, I think, for people to get their hearts and minds around the idea that she won't be there anymore. Um, yeah. Of course, there is now a new king, uh, King Charles yeah. III, um, and the continuity of the monarchy um, has continued. Um, has uh, has taken place seamlessly, um, but that doesn't ultimately uh, change the fact that people uh, here in the UK, whatever their feelings about um, the concept of monarchy, I think universally people recognize um, that a presence in national and international life yeah. is, is, um, is no more. It's funny to me, not funny, that's not the right word. I I have, you know... I'm your just typical elder millennial um, turned 40 earlier this year. And I've, and I, she has been, a. I mean, to be completely honest, like she's just, she's just a presence. She's there. She was there. And and when I was a child, she was there uh, as I grew into my early adulthood and, and I always kind of felt like a peerage in a way to, and not the peerage in the way that I think uh, the, the, the tenure that is brought to mind in maybe the Anglo mind, but I, I've always felt like the Harry and they were like my own generation. And so I'm just thinking a lot about the family and what it's like to lose a loved one. And and I, so my deepest condolences, and I know that you're probably a lot of your work as a priest and, and a vicar is, is, you know, just being that presence to the flock that you shepherd. So my prayers are with you, but okay. So you've been in England for about 20 years is that right? Is that what I've read? Okay. Yeah. So grew up in Texas. What, how, how, help me draw the line point A to point B. What's the right. story? What brought you there? How did you get there? Well, the simple answer is that I first came to England uh, for any length of time. I had been over here um, with my family on, on vacations. Um, yeah. But uh I came over here as a postgraduate student to study mm-hmm. at Oxford uh, and uh, pursued my doctoral studies there in Oxford. Uh, and after uh, a certain amount of time, uh, I discovered I had made a life here. And yeah. uh, so I think a big, a big moment for me was the decision to what I felt I had a calling to ordain ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, a big decision was whether or not to return to the U S and, yeah. Um, pursue uh, the uh, discernment process uh, in the Episcopal Church, the church mm-hmm. I grew up in, mm-hmm. um, or whether to stay here in England and pursue uh, that process in the Church of England. And uh, 
I should say that my background is that my father is a retired yeah. priest. And so uh, neither priesthood uh, nor the Anglican tradition broadly um, yeah. hold any uh, great mysteries for me. Yeah. Um, but uh, certainly that was a big choice I made at that time. Yeah. Um, and uh, having decided to stay here to pursue the process, um, I was fortunate that uh, the church decided to sponsor me for um, theological training and uh, and then subsequently for ordination. Yeah. And and uh, and then I met my wife. And uh, yes. And here I am 20 years yeah, later, 20 years later. What was it? I, I'm always interested to thinking about what causes someone to claim something that they were raised with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's the term cradle Episcopalian or cradle Anglican. And then there are people who maybe come to the faith or even not, it doesn't even have to be something that uh, is specific to being a person who's raised in the Episcopal or Anglican tradition, just when you go all in and claim your Christianity as an adult, Mm. what do you have a moment or a series of moments that made you know that this faith that you had been raised in was something that was yours and that led you to that ordained path. Yeah, I don't know that there was a sort of Damascene moment. Uh, I I think it was probably a series of smaller moments or experiences that gradually clarified that for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly, I grew up in very loving and and encouraging Episcopal environments. Um, And so I had a positive feeling about uh, church life. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I come from a, a big family, but not all of my siblings share my commitment. Yeah. Um, and so my parents, I think, certainly um, encouraged us, but they didn't force us um, to follow in their footsteps. Yeah. Um, and that's that's something that I've had a lot of time to think about. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think uh, the sense of belonging was always mm. important to me. Um, I had a natural kind of, as a child, I suppose, a religious disposition. Yeah. Um, yeah. I enjoyed uh, serving my father at the altar. I, uh, you know, as I said, felt that church was a place where people were kind to me and I felt um, I mattered. Um, And then that eventually, I think, um, evolved into a curiosity about theology and about, um, how Christianity can help one um, find meaning and yeah. address big questions in life. Um, and so again, it wasn't all at once, um, yeah. but, but gradually I think I concluded that in a world where people are desperately seeking a sense of purpose and connection mm. uh, for me, I didn't have to look any further than the tradition in which I had grown up. Yeah. doesn't mean tradition always uh, satisfies um, everything yeah. for me. But when I thought about uh, the idea of, you know, looking out for meaning or for purpose elsewhere, I thought, well, this is who I am. This is where God has placed me. And um, it makes sense for me to, um, as it were, dig deeper where I'm already standing. Yeah. 
Yeah. And in addition to that kind of theological rooting, it seems like the art of historical detection and learning about the past was something that really caught your eye and, and in, in to, to the extent that you pursued it in higher education. And I guess now you're writing these wonderful books about the history of the church and those veins of social activism. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I, again, you know, I think for me, a very powerful strand of my upbringing um, was my parents' own experience mm. um, as Episcopalians in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And growing up hearing them talk and their friends, that generation of people talk about the impact um, that things like the civil rights movement had upon their Christian uh, belief yeah, and yeah. understanding, the impact it had in reshaping the church as they knew it, mm -hmm. um, the strong sense um, well into, you know, my adolescence and adulthood that um, the Episcopal Church um, was constantly looking for ways uh, to engage society. And, uh, you know, for me, that was always just a given that that was part yeah. of Christian life and witness. Um, the research and the writing has been an attempt to understand the background to that. Yeah, yeah. And, and to sort of inquire more deeply into the roots of those assumptions that I grew up with. Yeah. So for our listeners who may not know very much, I mean, I think that one of the things that we love to say about ourselves as good Episcopalians is that we are kind of a social justice denomination. We are going to, you know, hit the streets when we need to. Um, and, it, and, you know, depending on where you are, um, at least here in West Tennessee, that's something that um, we're not really ambivalent about. Like we, we are going to get out and speak up for people who have been systemically underserved. Um, but it, that, that's something that we take for granted, but can you maybe unpack for us a little bit about why we're so, it, it's so easy for us to just say, well, this is who we are as Episcopalians. We, we get out there and it's not just about what we do on Sundays, but it's about what we do a lot of the other times. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it, cuts to the heart of the the work that I've tried to do is is answering that question um, and my what I would hypothesize is that it's now so strong in the Episcopal Church precisely because it wasn't always the case um, that there has been a transformation in the yeah. identity of the church um, which isn't to say that there haven't always been individual Episcopalians mm. who've been committed to serving the poor and the marginalized or to challenging church and society. Right. I mean, it's, I think that it's kind of baked into the title of your book, the privilege and prophet prophecy. There's a privileged element to it. This, our church is one of the foundational, you know, it's, it's no surprise that the same structure that we find in our Episcopal denomination here in the United States is the same as uh, the governance structure of the United States of America. It's because yes. they were, they were 
constructed at the same time, right? Yeah, and uh, well, absolutely. Al- although it's it's a little more complicated yeah, yeah. than than people think. You know, the old the old uh, story that you know that the same people who were drawing up the Constitution would cross the road to draw up the yeah. uh, Constitution of the Episcopal Church. I mean, that's not strictly speaking true. Right. It, it does it does speak to um, the fact that. Uh, Anglicans in the newly formed United States, although initially deeply dislocated and dis um, and alienated by uh, the process, those who chose to stay um, did uh, reconstitute Anglican uh, life and worship in in the United States, and they tended uh, to be people uh, with power and privilege um, because uh, not 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 exclusively. But that has, in fact, been the case in the Episcopal Church um, for most of its history. Yeah. Um, what I think changed for the Episcopal Church, and, and this is the central argument of my book, um, was that in the years following the Second World War, mm-hmm. uh, those people, um, and, and by this I mean often uh, the leadership of the church, often people who had grown up in relatively privileged circumstances, um, very deliberately and consciously sought um, to find ways to make the church more responsive institutionally uh, to the needs of American society, which again, I hasten to say, doesn't mean that there weren't people doing that before. Right, right. What I would argue is that there was a sort of confluence of um, people um, and movements in the church that made it the central thrust yeah, of yeah. the ministry. Um, and, and that that's, that's created a fundamental change in the church's understanding of itself. Yeah. We talk a lot about how, um, you know, when, whenever we're whiteboarding, like our plan for what's next, we can have really, really lofty thoughts and we and ideas about what we want to do, but a lot of times we have to think, okay, the time is just not right. It's not right. They're not ready, you know, and it, it hurts our hearts sometimes because we want to make place for all of the good work um, to to bring justice, but sometimes the time is not right and the the cards are not lined up the way that they uh, for a optimal situation but it sounds like after in that post war era in the united states it, the time was right and it and finally there was a buy in right hmm. well yeah and i think that obviously some of the catalysts for that were external yeah uh, yeah civil rights movement mm-hmm. the anti-war movement uh these things weren't necessarily originating in within the episcopal church but yeah. they prompted episcopalians who were already as you say doing that of, work uh, yeah hungry and ready for that connection and that that sense of commitment um so uh, you know one of the things that i i tried to look at was the impact of the Second World War on mm-hmm. a generation of church leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at some of the people who became national leaders in the 1960s, yeah. uh, many of them uh, were men because the yeah. 
clerical leadership of right. course, men. Right. Um, and we and the Episcopal Church at that time was not ordaining women. Right? No, indeed. And in fact, uh not until uh not until later also were women um admitted as deputies in mm-hmm. general convention. Oh wow, that's um, I did not know that. Yeah, wow. it was it was quite late, really. Um but yeah. my point is is that many of those men uh, who came often from educated, uh, well-heeled mm. backgrounds. Many of them served as either um, active duty soldiers, officers, mm. or chaplains um, during the war. And not only did that expose them to a much wider array of American society, mm. um, but it, it gave them a powerful sense of uh, um, the church's um, mission and purpose um, you know, really on the front lines of people's uh, suffering and need. Um, yeah. and they came back from that experience, I think, determined that the church should be relevant yeah. Uh, yeah. outside of its own uh, institutional structures. I love the cover of the book. It's, it's a fair, it's a, you know, they always say, don't judge a book by its cover. Well, I, I am a former English major and I can say you need to judge a book by its cover. And I judge this book and this cover as being, I, I love it because it is the striking red color. And then you have these wonderful mug shots yes. of clerics and can you, will you, un, and, and you can look at the date um, on the placards hanging around their necks that they were these six clerics. They're all wearing their collars and their, and, um, and their clericals. And it says police department, Jackson, Mississippi, September the 13th, 1961. Tell us what, what happened on September the 13th, 1961, which is only, you know, this is another thing I did not plan for that. It's only two days you know the anniversary of these pictures being taken was only two days ago so wow exactly yeah I mean I was very lucky to come across these mugshots um and uh the historical collection of the state of Mississippi allowed uh, me to use them uh, uh on the cover of the book because really I was looking around for an image or images that would capture my sense of how Episcopalians were engaged actively um, in in the social ferment of the time. Mm. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, all of these guys in their black suits and their clerical collars looking very serious. Oh, yeah. They're not smiling. They're, no, they're not, not pleased they, to be there. We're, we're not expecting to be. Yeah. But who they were was um, there was actually a larger group. Um, and 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 there were more mugshots, which um, obviously couldn't all be on the cover. Mm. But um, it was a group of Episcopal clergy men who, uh, in keeping with what was already happening, decided to be freedom riders. Mm. And so there was actually a designated group of them who decided to travel through the South um, on their own uh, bus as part of the integration process. Um, it was a, a, a group that did obviously have both white and African-American members in it. Um, and they were arrested, as so many freedom writers were. Um, and they were hauled before the judge uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, 
um, mm -hmm. in September 1961, who it turns out was himself an active lay Episcopalian. Yeah, that uh, tracks, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> um, who was not best pleased um, yeah. by yeah. what they had done. And um, as anybody working in the church, um, that that is not uh, a surprise uh, to, <laughs> to anybody hearing that because there will you you will never make everyone happy you will well, never certainly true. we are not of one mind no and Our that mind. was certainly true i think a lot of um southern episcopalians mm -hmm. during time felt deeply alienated um by the fact that you had episcopalians from other parts of the country coming into their communities yeah. um to participate in the civil rights um movement yeah and they felt deeply misunderstood mm. and misrepresented um and they felt frustrated um that issues that they often felt um they were working at in their own way mm. uh, that that work that they were doing uh was not being acknowledged of course now we were we, we refer pejoratively to those sorts of people as gradualists and yeah. gradualism became a dirty word during the civil rights movement for good reasons um, but there were people like Bishop Carpenter, for example, who uh, felt deeply hurt by the ways in which he felt his his work in race relations um, was overlooked and, and caricatured. Yeah. Um, but anyway, to answer your original question, these people uh, were arrested in Jackson, Mississippi as freedom riders. Mm. Uh, they had their mugshots taken um, and then they were ultimately, um, I think, fined. Um, and and paid uh, you know to to um, be bonded and were able to move on. Yeah. And where they ended up going um, was to the general convention in Detroit. Yeah. So they met with a sort of hero's welcome. Wow. Um, once they traveled up by the bus they had been going on through the South, they went to Detroit 1961 general convention um, and told their story of what they had just uh, been through. Wow. I wonder, as I listen to the story of these freedom writers who are clergy in the Episcopal church, I always, it, it's really hard for me not to think about what was going on in Memphis around the same time, only, you know, uh, next door to where I'm sitting right now at St. Mary's Cathedral. Um, you know, the, the, when Martin Luther King came to Memphis and was ultimately um, assassinated at um, less than a mile from where I'm sitting right now at the Lorraine Motel, which is now the National Civil Rights Museum. Um, he came to Memphis to participate in the sanitation workers strike. Um, and to march with the uh, sanitation workers who um, at that time, deplorable working conditions, there had already been several workplace, uh, not uh, several workplace injured deaths, um, countless injuries. And he came here to advocate for them. And it was at that time um, that ultimately on the balcony of where he was staying at the Lorraine motel, he was um, assassinated. And it, it was 
within 24 hours that the dean of the cathedral at St. Mary's was among maybe 15 or 20 members of the clergy here in Memphis who were absolutely, who had already made contact with um, Dr. King when he was in town to, you know, to support him and to, you know, throw their hat in the ring and say, we're, we're going to march with you alongside these, these striking, these um, striking workers. Um, And within, I think it was 24 hours of his assassination, there was this march that was led uh, right in front of St. Mary's cathedral um, where uh, the, it was a very ecumenical group of uh, clergy in Memphis um, that marched down to the mayor's office to demand better, to demand not only what, what's going on that, that our own, we can't even keep our own. We can't even treat them fairly, but someone who as a person of faith comes to Memphis to advocate for them can't trust that his life won't be taken and there's this picture in the cathedral and i'll and i'll be sure to send it to you and i'll also post it in the show notes and on our social media um of this group of clergy in front of mayor Loeb's uh desk and the vantage point of the photographers he's like standing right behind Mayor Loeb so that you can see underneath his desk and you see this shotgun. So like he's, mm. he's sitting there with this huge firearm as people of faith are saying, what's got to give, what's got to mm. give. Mm. I, I just, I can't help but draw the parallel between what was happening during that time and the time that you write about in the book of just very, very, like the air was crackling. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And now, I mean, this is, I feel like we're living, we always say that, oh, you know, we're living in new times. These are strange Mm. times that we're living in, but it, 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 it seems like there's a lot of parallel between then and now. Well, I, I, I certainly agree with you that right now, uh, and again, I'm living in the UK, but yeah. contact with family and friends and yeah. you know, a profound worry and concern people feel at how divided American society is right now. Um, the anger, the frustration, um, the sense people have that um, that they are not part of the decision-making uh, that goes on that affects their lives. Mm. And, you know, again, in the 1960s, a similar sense that the country, the society was really coming apart at the seams. Mm. Um, obviously, you know, there were dramatic events and and deeply violent events like the assassinations of the Kennedys and Dr. King. There were the urban riots that kept happening um, in major American cities um, we maybe haven't seen exactly those sorts of things, but there are other indicators um, of a fundamental sense of alienation and division in yeah. America. I and, feel like we yeah. feel that in Memphis. We're living at a very 
I, I don't know if I, you know, we chatted a little bit before we went on the air, but we're living in kind of a solemn moment and here in Memphis right now, uh, because about, uh, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago, there was a, a kidnapping of a young woman who, uh, a young woman and mother of two, who is a teacher at um, St. Mary's School um, here in Memphis was uh, kidnapped and her life was taken. And, it, and, and then several days later, there was a uh, gunman who just drove through our city shooting at random ended up taking three lives and injuring, uh, I think seven others. And, you know, there was a few hours, there was a pocket of time when last Wednesday afternoon, when we were all just sitting, like what we all knew that this was happening. Everybody was ordered to go home. And, and one of my good colleagues and friends, um, who was a young, who was a uh, a young lady in Memphis at the time of the 60s said the only time she remembers a stay at home warning mm. had been instituted in Memphis was during uh, was at the time of uh, Dr. King's assassination. So that, I mean, that's, that's where we're living right now. <laughs> and, and, and yeah. it's, and it's very tenuous. It's, t- it's tenuous to want to keep pushing for, justice when it seems like the world is falling apart yeah but of course uh it's yeah, precisely moments it's like that when people precisely feel like yeah and i would just point out uh to people um listening that the black lives matter movement um that of course really got going in the u.s yeah has had an impact here yes. as well in wow. the united kingdom and um some of the same um, issues are being addressed here, and uh, many of the people uh, who are um, spearheading that effort, I think, look to the U.S. as um, wow. an influence on them. Um, we have some of the same questions here arising now about our relationship to the past, about whether certain statues and monuments should be yeah. taken down. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is increasingly not just um, a sort of tolerance of casual or, or um, unintentional racism and discrimination, but an active sort of identification of it, um, active anti-racism work being uh, um, undertaken. Yeah. Um, similarly, um, some deep and abiding concerns around uh, police behavior, for example, mm-hmm. um, towards ethnic minorities in this country. And and again, I think the the American experience has has had an impact here in ways that perhaps Americans aren't aware of. Wow. That's, thank you for that. That, that kind of puts winds in our sails Mm -hmm. to know that it's, it's makes an impact and it's seen. Um, because as you know, it, there, there are moments when you feel like you're falling on deaf ears. When you were doing your research for the book and, uh, were there any, things that you learned in your own research and the own process of writing, which for me, writing can be a deeply cathartic and, uh, you know, experience where you can uncover stuff that was, that had always been in your heart, but, or, you know, kind of simmering in your mind, but it was just teasing out the words 
made you mm. kind of fundamentally understand them in a more, more profound way. Um, did you have any moments or stories that, that hit you or left an impact on you that while you were writing the book and, and doing your research for the story or for the, for the book? Well, I, I, I think for me, it was, again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a very personal journey um, in the sense that I was trying to understand um, what lay behind a lot of the stories and the values and assumptions um, of my parents and their generation mm -hmm. of Episcopalians. And uh, again, being historically minded, asking the question, why is the Episcopal Church that I grew up in in the 1980s and 90s, why was it um, so different from the Episcopal Church that my parents grew up in in the sort of 1940s and 50s? Yeah. And also to ask why, as we said before, some of the assumptions, um, widespread assumptions in the Episcopal Church uh you know, those things didn't just come out of nowhere. Right. And right. So for me, it was about taking a step back and, and sort of in, investigating the roots of certain um, habits or, or attitudes or assumptions. And I think inevitably one has to look at people like um, John Hines, the great yeah. presiding Bishop of the yeah. 1960s. Um, and, you know, Heinz's impact on the Episcopal Church was enormous. Um, he wasn't alone by any means. I mean, one could list his predecessor, Arthur Lichtenberger, who sometimes mm -hmm. gets overlooked, but Lichtenberger shared uh, Heinz's commitment to um, social justice, a very different type of person, but nonetheless sure. did a can lot you, of the, the legwork. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, Heinz and who he was? for folks who may not have ever heard that name before. Of course. Uh, John Hines um, was uh, a native of South Carolina. He uh, grew up uh, in a, a mixed family, by which I mean he had an Episcopal mother and a Presbyterian father. Um, but he, from an early age, um, became committed to the Episcopal Church uh, he went on to study um, at Sewanee um, and then directly uh, trained for ordination at Virginia Seminary. Um, he was doing his training at Virginia during the Great Depression and, and spoke later of the impact um, that that had on him going into Washington, D.C. and seeing uh, the suffering of people during the Depression. Um, he went on to parish ministry in various places in the South and at a very young age, um, was called to be um, Bishop Coadjutor of Texas. I should say, one of the places he went before that happened was St. Louis, mm -hmm. where he fell under the influence of uh, Will Scarlett, um, the famous Bishop of Missouri, mm -hmm. who was, um, again, a very vocal advocate of social justice, a great friend of Reinhold Niebuhr and Eleanor Roosevelt, mm -hmm. and Will Scarlett, again, coming out yeah. of not very well-known evangelical um, tradition of the Episcopal yeah. Church. Um, but Heinz also had um, sort of evangelical um, roots, um, and that contributed, I think, to his um, powerful sense of the word. Yeah. Um, he was known as a great preacher. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, eventually became a diocesan bishop of Texas mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, was a great institution builder, um, founded St. Stephen's School um, in Austin. And, and from the very beginning and at a time when this was not obvious, insisted that it should be racially integrated. Uh, he founded the Seminary of the Southwest in Austin, yeah. to be yeah. a progressive institution to train clergy. Yeah. And then, of course, um, to the surprise of some, was elected uh, to succeed Arthur Lichtenberger as presiding bishop um, in 1964. Yeah. Uh, and proceeded to really push the Episcopal Church very hard. Yeah. Um, ways that not everybody liked. Yeah. Um, in the ways of um, making the institution an agent for social change. Yeah. If someone doesn't like the way you're doing it, I've always heard, then maybe that's a sign that you're doing it the right way. You got <laughs> to get under people's skin occasionally. Uh, he, he did. He did do that in lots of ways. Yeah. <laughs> by, yeah. All means, uh, by all accounts was um, a very loving and warm person who uh, really, uh, you know, combined this passion for social justice with uh, a profoundly charismatic presence um, and and a deep pastoral heart. And so I know that uh, my own father and many other clergy of Mm. that generation um, were powerfully influenced by by John Hines' example. And when you were talking about Heinz, you know, we, you indicated some of the really amazing lasting impact uh, that he has had on the church and the denomination today. And just, I think the general, um, like this, the general feel of who, what the angle or the Episcopal church is, it's a place where um, if you are called to act to ministry through activism, there is a place for you. Um, as you reflect on this chapter of history um, and sort of some of the groundwork that was laid during the post-war era, how what are some other ways that you see those those tendrils um active and alive in the church of today of the church of 2022 well again i think one of the things that um seems pretty obvious to those of us who know the episcopal church is that it's it's self-consciously cultivates a program of progressive social engagement um and It's not um, a a surprise or a coincidence that the Episcopal Church, for example, uh, has been vocal on matters of sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that I wanted to do wasn't so much to look at all of the current debate, Mm -hmm. um, the Anglican communion, but rather to understand why the Episcopal Church ended up where it has yeah, uh, yeah, and other things. Um, one could look back a little further and recognize that, for example, uh, Episcopalians, um, you know, took an active interest in the ap- anti-apartheid movement. For mm, example, yeah, yeah, in definitely. Early nineties. Um, some of them uh, are engaged with the whole vexed issue of the Israel-Palestine dilemma. Um, I should also add, though, that you know there are Episcopalians. Um, who are critical of the church um, or parts of the church that they feel um, 
add, um, place excessive um, yeah. emphasis on social action, who feel that in the last 50 years, the Episcopal Church has, in some sense, lost its way. Yeah, yeah. It's important to recognize that because um, John Hines, who I mentioned a minute ago, uh, ultimately, I think, felt that he lost the confidence of many Episcopalians. Mm, yeah. And uh, stepped down from his role um, perhaps earlier than he might have. Um, so it would be easy to tell the story um, as one of uninterrupted. Uh, yeah, yeah. Of just let's all join hands and sing Kumbaya. And it's like, but, oh, that's that's very much the glossy uh, Saturday morning cartoon version of the way it is. We are not of one mind. No. And, and you know, sometimes people tend to look at that as yeah. a clergy versus lay uh, divide. I don't think it's that simple. I don't uh, think it is either. But, knowing yeah. both, knowing <laughs> people across our beautiful spectrum, yeah. our faith community spectrum, people who are ordained, people who are lay leaders, people who are lay uh, employees. I, I think that there is the one binding cord that we can agree on is that it is worth being together and it's worth having the conversations with someone who might have a completely different view of what's more important, social activism or contemplation or whatever you want to put off as the, as the highest priority of the Episcopal church. What I see are is uh, the common ground is that the willingness to have the conversation. Indeed. And, you know, one of the things Episcopalians have always done um, and it can be painful and embarrassing and awkward is that those, those conversations have often taken place in public. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, you do, you want to, you want to uh, fight with your family members behind closed doors. You certainly <laughs> don't want to do it in the middle of the grocery store. Yeah. And, and that was something that uh, fascinated me, particularly when there were some pretty tough times in the 1970s over prayer book revision, mm -hmm. over women's ordination. Um, some of the uh, earliest sort of breakaway groups did leave the church over those issues in the 1970s. And we've, of course, sadly seen other constituencies um, move away from the Episcopal Church since then. Yeah. Um, but the media um, reporting on on some of this uh, marveled at the Episcopal Church's capacity uh, to have these fights in public. Yeah, uh, yeah. And 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 commented on on that being a distinguishing feature of, yeah. of Episcopal way. Um, so yeah, it's not always comfortable. Um, and uh, you know, the Episcopal Church's constitution its convention, these things demand uh, transparency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It isn't necessarily a hallmark of, of some other churches. Yeah, definitely. Well, whenever we do an episode of Faithfully Memphis, there is always a question that we love to, to lead or not to lead with, to, to leave with. And, and it kind of, and I'm going to pose it to you in light of all of the things that you're seeing as a human being, as a husband, as a cleric, as someone who cares deeply about 
his church, his faith, his family, what is something that is giving you hope for the future and is giving you a sense of well-being today? Well, it's, it's, it's a question I have cause to ask myself all the time because I, my wife and I have a three-year-old daughter, uh, oh, wow. who has, uh, as any parent will tell you, has both, um, transformed our lives in ways we could never have, have, uh, imagined both, uh, positively and also has exhausted us. Uh, yes. I will co-sign that. <laughs> I co-sign, I have a 10 year old and yeah, she is. Yeah. Oh me, I, 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 yeah, my 10 year old is once a three year old, so I'll keep you in my prayers. <laughs> but, you know, as, as I think about her and the world she's going to grow up in, there are plenty of reasons to feel anxious for her. Um, you know, plenty of things I could point to and say, how can I protect her from what's mm. coming? Um, but then I have to remind myself that, you know, People have always felt that way. Um, and there are things to be frightened of, but there are also, as Christians, ways in which we know um, that we can be confident. And yeah. my hope for her as um, somebody who has watched the church uh, in my lifetime suffer uh, loss and to um, institutionally at least um, is diminished um, since, uh, you know, the period that we've been talking about, um, ever since the 1960s, um, the mainline denominations in the United States have been, have been shrinking in terms of their, their size and their institutional uh, power. Mm -hmm. um, but what I take comfort in is knowing that no matter what happens in terms of church structures, Christians will always gather Yes. And um, the gospel will continue to be uh, preached and shared. And I don't know what kind of church and world my daughter is going to grow up in, but I have to hope that um, that she will find meaning and power in, in the good news. And uh, and that, you know, it's my job and the job of her mother and of the church as we know it now to instill in her some of those things that I enjoyed as a, a child, a sense of being loved in the wow. church, a sense yeah. of hope that I could do whatever it was that God was calling me to do. Um, and, you know, the Episcopal Church has been a church that has known power and privilege um, and perhaps the gift it can offer the wider society and world is that confidence that we can, in fact, uh, do something good in the world that God has given us the grace and the power to make change. Um, we are empowered by Jesus. And that's something I hope for my daughter and for the generations to come. Wow. I love that. I love that. You, you said it a lot more eloquently than I could. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for spending this time with me today. Um, where can people buy the book? <laughs> That's very kind. Um, well, the book is, of course, on Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, or if you go to the Oxford University Press website, uh, you should be able to find it there as well. 
Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure that we've got uh, the links to purchase the book in the show notes and Hey, and if anybody who's listening wants to do a online study, maybe we could read the book together and um, discuss it. Uh, yeah, reach out to me. You know how to find me. Uh, you can always email me at Emily Austin. It's eaustin at E-P-I-S-W-T-N dot O-R-G. Thank you so much for joining me again this week for Faithfully Memphis. Um, You can listen to past episodes on all of the podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, I mean, all of the above. Please leave us a positive review because and a rating and all that kind of good stuff because that really helps us uh, spread the word about what we're doing here in West Tennessee. Um, You can learn more about our churches and our ministries in West Tennessee on our website, edwtn.org. And I would encourage you to listen next week as the Reverend Jonathan Chesney, who is the Senior Associate Rector at Church of the Holy Communion in Memphis, um, interviews Josh Horton from the Creative Works Conference. Um, They're going to be uh, re-upping the Behold the Unveiled series on creativity and spirituality and the intersection of beauty that comes uh, when we smash those two wonderful things together. And until next time, stay safe and stay positive. Bye.